Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Ford. And Bill, today we're well warmed up. We are and very warmed up. If you want to hear what our warm-up stuff involves, just go on our Facebook Live video. But today we are gonna we're coming off of a a dialogue with Dave Fitch and Jeff Holsclaw. Yes, a which is a dialogue about the five uh, hundredth anniversary of the Reformation. Yeah. So we encourage you to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. So and today we're gonna go back more than 500 years to Plato's Euthyphro. You're just doing this to get on my good side. <laughs> yeah, right. I forgot. This is your... Yeah, right. This is a little before your favorite time. Right, but, but all my favorite guys are platonic. It's the, it's the, it's the prequel. The prequel. You're doing the prequel. Yeah, the prequel. Yeah. All the, all the guys I like just took Plato and made them better. <laughs> yeah. So this is an early dialogue, although I don't... Yeah, it's hard to do. I mean, do you put stock in like the, it's like the historical Jesus stuff. Yeah. I mean, because you have a tradition, it's all passed on by Plato. Like right. Jesus, Socrates didn't write anything. And so right, people, right. I mean, if anything, I think the only thing you could say is maybe it reflects shifts in Plato's thought. Yes. Not, so not, not, not in Socrates. Yeah, but just because we don't have access right, to that. So right, I, exactly. I have no, and, and neither of us know enough probably to weigh in on that debate anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we'll, That's right. let's just dismiss it. Uh, so I think that like this is one of my favorite um dialogues and some of it like all of them are great and Plato's been cut, brought up on charges of impiety which is Socrates or sorry Socrates sorry has been brought up on charges of impiety which is that's great. Yeah. So <laughs> like, you, what's the charge you're facing? Impiety. Yep. If you're going to go down, <laughs> I'm not sufficiently pious. <laughs> corrupting corrupting the the city's youth guilty guilty as charged if if you guys are the standard i've corrupted them yes but then he encounters this guy i think is on his way to the trial and oh no it's a different trial he's going to try he's going to try his father right right. no he encounters this guy on the way right and this guy's like hey it's one of these what are you doing here in the market for the agora well i'm (laughs) what i'm doing i'm thrilled because i'm going to prosecute my father because uh, my father had this slave who I think committed a, a, a crime or something. And so he bound him and kind of threw him in a ditch. He's like, we'll deal with you tomorrow. And he like died of exposure or something. So right. it's before climate change and this unseasonable warmth. It's 70 degrees in November. Uh, I ran the air conditioning last night oh in Philadelphia. Yeah, no, it is. No. I'm in sandals. Yeah. So Euthyphro basically says, well, I'm doing this. I'm very proud of what I'm doing. I'm, I'm my father, you know, was irresponsible with the prisoner, and you know, I'm a good Athenian citizen. Absolutely, and, and it's time to prosecute his ass. <laughs> That's right. And Socrates is kind of curious. Shame about is this. shame is pre Freud, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so Socrates is really curious about this because it seems like an impious act. Like it's oh, like, right. like, like right. it's this, you know, in in in. A, At least it's a quandary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because on, on some level, filial piety and, and right, exactly, right. and maybe in a sort of modern age that sort of where psychological categories are over the place, and, and we know the only family that's not dysfunctional is the family that keeps good secrets. But maybe like in, in that age, it's filial piety is sure. a tougher sell. But like, right. but in, in most of world culture, this is this the sense of debt to. Who was your ancestor? Right, your, who, be, who bequeathed you into the world? Right. You know, you owed a debt of, right. to your origins. And so this is, uh, he's like, well, you know, uh, the long and short end of it, uh, at one point he says, Zeus killed Kronos. If it's good enough for Zeus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> 
Now we are in Freud territory. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? That's right. And thus religion's born. Right. We kill the father and we deify him. Yeah. But somebody posted about this on Twitter, which is famously kind of called the, the Euthyphro Dilemma. Right. Which is, do we do things because... The, uh, it's based on the line Socrates has. Yeah. Yeah. Or ask the question, are... are are things good because the gods say them or is or they or do they say them because they're good yeah, right, right right and so this is kind of and there's layers and layers of irony in, the, in that like socrates is you know like i mean at the end of the dialogue where there are no resolutions where there and it's clear that euthyphro has not really learned much right he's yeah. like all right i gotta stop talking about this because i gotta go prosecute my father <laughs> Oh my goodness! But there was this thing about on Twitter about Van Til versus Lewis on the Euthyphro Dilemma, which is, I mean, I'm less interested in that. <laughs> you know what my favorite part of the article was when the guy, the guy who uh, he says that these are his two favorite uh, apologists. Uh, so, and he's trying, he's going to great lengths to reconcile him over against Peter Kreeft, who uh, he's he's Peter Kreeft is one of the people he's gone after in terms of his interpretation of Lewis versus Calvin. And he is deeply wounded by Kreeft's misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah poor Calvinist. <laughs> poor Peter Kreeft, if he only knew better. But at any rate, according to this guy, my favorite line was uh, that uh, C.S. Lewis never read Van Til, and his reason was, yeah, yeah, like most of the world. Most of the world. <laughs> And he says in the article, he goes, unfortunately, people sent him some Van Til writings, but C.S. Lewis didn't have time to get to them. Uh, if we, if that's what you want to think, then then that's, I, I think uh, they probably ended up in C.S. Lewis's refuse box, but at any rate. It's funny, when, when Karl Barth met Cornelius Van Til, no, Cornelius Van Til wrote a book, J. Gerson Machen's famous book was Christianity and Liberalism, that, and saying that liberalism and Christianity are two different relig religions right. that use the same vocabulary but with different grammars you know so it'd be like if i handed you a you know like a, a microphone and said bill could you hold my machine gun and you're like i know microphone i know machine gun but i don't know what this means <laughs> right. so then you know I, van till's revision of his book on bart was called christianity and bardianism oh uh, right <laughs> basically yeah, yeah. Now, and we ought to put, put van till in more context because everyone pretty much knows who listens to us probably knows who c.s lewis is but not so much van till yeah he was a uh, sort of theologian and, and apologist at at Westminster Seminary, and a friend of Machen's, and comes out of a kind of Dutch uh, tradition, and is and some people think that he's the quintessential reform thinker and the only one that got that tradition right. In fact, yeah. I actually listened to an hour and a half lecture by one of his disciples, Greg Bonson, where he went through like every significant Reformation figure and said, including Calvin. And said that they all are not really reformed because they're, which means not really truly authentic Protestants in this sort of tradition following people like Swingling Calvin because they all sound like Thomas Aquinas, uh, nature and grace. So Van, so Van Til is actually more Calvinist than John Calvin was. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. So he's that's yeah. who he is. He's a quintessential scholastic Calvinist of the 20th century, maybe the and uh, and definitely represents the most extreme wing of that. Would you say, or one of the more extreme? Well, wing? I mean, no, I I don't. You wouldn't call it extreme. But we're, it, well, it's a little. It's an eccentric wing. All right, there we go. That's, but, yeah, but I think that's less judgmental. That's true. But I, I will want to say I would want to say that I think Van Til is most famous. I think for. Other than a, a completely misunderstood book on Bart, I mean, when Bo when Bart met him at Princeton, uh, J I think it was Jim McCord was president at the time and said, "You know, Professor Bart, this is Professor Van Til. And Bart just wagged his finger and said, 
Professor Van Til, I've heard you've been saying naughty things about me. <laughs> uh, this way, uh, yeah, this, it's a great story. That's funny. But I think, you know, okay, I think the thing I've learned, I have actually read Van Til. Uh, okay, and I will. I've only read about Van Til. I mean, no, that's not, I've probably read. I've read a little bit of him, but the, I, the, I, the I, best, my own full disclosure. If anybody wants to get a sense for Van Til, like a comprehensive analysis that is sympathetic and critical, John Frame, one of his students, wrote a book called Van Til: An Analysis of His Thought, and it's a very good critical approach to Van Til. Which I mean, Frame learned from Van Til, but like he has. Some, Critical and scholarly. Yes, absolutely. But Van Til's point, basically, he founded presuppositional apologetics, which was this idea that, look, whereas sort of classical apologetics, which is, you know, defensive of religious faith, usually Christian faith, but not exclusively. It usually starts theism. Yeah. Yeah. It starts with things we can all commonly assume right? right so whether it's you know thomas aquinas and the five ways sort of well you know every being you see is contingent you right. know it didn't have to be right but then if no being had to be well right. if every you go back to the chain well yeah necessary being and that right. is what we all what most people call god so that's sort of looking at the nature of the world of the world process and things like that and, and, and assumes that everybody could see at least that there's a God and one like theism or evidentialism where the, the Josh McDowell sort of stuff like, you know, evidence demands a verdict. You, right. you all these. So Van Til's big criticism of that stuff is that basically there's, and this is where he is prescient on one point. It's a, it's a sort of uh, early pre-modern, post-modern kind of insight. Like the, the biases uh, make that kind of neutral reasoning impossible. That everybody comes with a point of view. And right. so when you attempt to argue based on a point of view, well, the Christian point of view is based on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so everything makes sense from that perspective. And right. so how can you die? How can you sort of hope to defend this sort of theology and view of, of faith, life in the world if somebody rejects the central thing at right. its premise? Right. So, I mean, so typically like people. Yeah, for Aquinas, because Aristotle was science. Aristotle yeah. was accepted. So he was arguing with that. Aristotle framework. was. Science. <laughs> What's that American American uh, hustle? That movie, the microwave. Uh, what is it? It's a science of it. It cooks with science. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, 
Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Cress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. But we should, let's get back. Well, okay, so so basically this article uh, is... But I, let me just finish on okay, the Van Tilden. Okay, okay. So basically the argument is that like, so when people say the danger of circular arguments are, well, is, a Van Tilden will say, well, you know, Christianity is true because the triune God explains reality best and Jesus is Lord and the Bible verifies that. Well, that's a circular argument. Well, what's your standard for re- critiquing it? Um, human rationality. Well, how do you know that's infallible in the standard right, we sure, go sure. well human rationality tells me so so if, if the right. bible tells me so so i mean van till is is, is key about presuppositions and i think that is uh, a, a very important point yeah it's an important point but yeah. it, whereas c.s lewis wants to sort of go at things with what he sees as shared presuppositions right. that that are widely right. conceded right so what brings us to the issue of 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 what we where we begin what's how does this relate to the dialogue the platonic dialogue. so basically this guy you were talking about the article says that these are two, he's trying to reconcile people that probably wouldn't have had an easy time talking with each other but lewis sort of i mean lewis seems at first to grant the dilemma which you know this and let's repeat the dilemma so the dilemma is if you wind up so basically socrates is like well if you're doing this act and saying it's pious, it's funny that he doesn't say it's just. He says it's pious. Right. Well, it's good. And, but he, in the words, yeah. It's good, yeah. And it's clearly this guy is not, Euthyphro is not the best critical theological reflector. Right. I mean, he's, he's kind he's of, a, he's a, he's a perfect straw man for yeah, this. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, he's popular folk religion. So yeah. the gods say this, whatever. And, and you know, it's good enough for Zeus, good enough for me. And eventually they get to this point where, well, there are many gods, and they're in conflict at many times. Like, look at the Homeric myths. I mean, right. sometimes Zeus pisses off Hera. I mean, right. so, all the time. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it's like uh, was that Al Bundy married with children uh, projected in the heavens? Right. <laughs> Except if Al Bundy could throw lightning bolts and seduce young maidens and things like that, she <laughs> could do neither. Yeah, exactly. So she says, uh, but so it's it, 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 at some point they get into this problem right so well then they agree on well what must be pious is what all the gods love and so euthyphro will it will sign on to that like after we they get through the problem of the polytheism and things like that right you know they can can they can get to the place where they both agree that what what's pious is what all the gods love so then the question becomes well do they love it uh because it's right it's it's just or it's you know or is it just because they love it? Right. In other words, is there an independent? Is there so? Is there an independent idea of good apart from the divine? Is something good just because it's good, or is it good because God says it's good? Yeah. And so, what in the article? It's Kreeft uh, wrote a book and critiques what he said: twenty modern heresies, and Calvinism is one of his modern heresies. <laughs> In the Vantillian tradition. Yeah, right. It, it's being a good No, keep in mind, Kreeft is a convert to Convert, good, yeah. uh, very smart guy, but he is a convert. So, and part of what his critique is, is this idea of the radical independence 
maybe we would call it sovereign sovereignty of God. Where um, and again, uh, this is this is kind of the, the nominalistic framework. This is part of what created the crisis in the in the psychology of Martin Luther and the theology of those that followed him. But this idea that God is so free. Okay, if God one day decided, and again, th- this is a nominalist idea, and uh, this is Occam didn't Occam was posing this as an illustration, not actually as a point. William of Occam, who is considered one of the fathers of uh, nominalism, and I think the Reformation inherits his theology in some parts, uh, in terms of the doctrine of God. They react against it, but I'm not sure they totally escape his doctrine of God. And Shakespeare was against it, because when he says, arose by any other name, it still arose. I mean, there, I mean, there, I think there is a, a latent Anti- critique an of anonymous argument that, like, it doesn't, because anonymous is like, well, were labels, or reality, these are arbitrary things. And so, and Shakespeare's saying, no, that, that we, even if you don't call it a rose, it has a nature, it has a being, it, yeah. But the philosophical foundation of covenantal theology, I mean, certainly there's a biblical foundation, and that certainly informed the reformers. But the philosophical background of covenantal theology is uh, is solidly located in nominalism and their understanding of the new, in reality, the radical freedom of God actually elevates the human character inversely as well. So there's a sense where God and humans no longer share a kind of being with each other or an analogy of being. So therefore, so if God and humans are going to relate, they have to do it through covenant. Okay. And so there, you know, that's, there's a tie in there and it's very complicated and, and anomalous are hard to read. Uh, trust me, I spent a semester having to do it. So, and also I think yeah. it, it, it's also fair to say that, that it's not altogether that consistent because somebody like Carl Barth looks at the covenant theology and sees natural. Th- he sees too much analogy. He sees too much bottom up thinking. Like oh, well, you know, like it, it's they, how you. Yeah, it's how you utilize covenant yeah. theology. But it, there, but it's important to understand that that's that's in the air. It's not just it's not just about looking at Abraham, David, and Moses. Not in that order. Um, so the issue the issue then is if if God is so independent, God is so sovereign, okay, that if God decided tomorrow to say bad was good, God could do that because yeah. that's the nature because uh, the nature of whether you call it epistemology or the morality, everything is based on God's pronouncement and God's um, saying of it, or not saying, but you know what God deems to be something is what is. As opposed to the idea that there's an independent thing that we can call, again, by analogy, when we say God is good, okay, and humanity and, and a human can be good, we know those are radically two different things, but they're not so different that we can't have some analogy of understanding between of them. And that's that's the different worldview. And so part of what late medieval theology says no to that, and that's part of what the, the reformers inherit as well. And the 20th century debate on this the, is famously Bart's sort of debate with somebody like von Balthasar about the, their, I mean, Bart wouldn't deny that there's an analogy. Is it an analogy of being or an analogy of faith? And then people, you know, I mean, but the, I mean, Bart, who is Protestant and ecumenical and von Balthasar, who is Catholic and ecumenical, I mean, they were friends and von Balthasar wrote a fantastic book on Bart interpretation. But I mean, that probably the, the kind of reproachment comes somewhere in between their thinking. Right. Like, and I think, you know, it's interesting, um, and you, this is a problem that's not just a uh, Reformation issue. It's not just a late medieval theological philosophical They were issue. fighting about it in Athens. <laughs> they were fighting about it in Athens. And actually, in the rabbinical literature, um, yeah, the yeah. idea of the what's the difference between, you know, again, there are different Hebrew words. And um, they may have started out just being synonyms, but the rabbis end up 
defining different, uh, what they mean. And, you know, when it talks about God gives ordinances and statutes, uh, the rabbis said that a statute is something that God is, is right because God says it. So, for instance, there is when God says we are to eat kosher, okay, our circumcision, there's no independent source for that other than it's because God says so. You wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I shouldn't eat lobster or, gosh, why don't we do this to our sons on the eighth day? <laughs> you, may, you probably wouldn't just come up with that idea. A, a ordinance is something that would be right or wrong regardless of God commanded it. And so there's a certain kind of sense of independence. In other words, there is, uh, and there's two streams. And what's beautiful about the Genesis narrative is Abraham and God go back and forth on it. For instance, when uh, Abraham, again, I think we always misread the negotiations between Abraham and God around uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, because, you know, at one point, you know, the, there's three, you know, there's three guys. I know it's a weird passage, but there's three guys. I love that passage. Yeah, it is. I love it, too. It's the best icon. There's three too. guys, and they're, tab- you know, they come, and Sarah laughs because she's got to have a baby. But then they kind of talk among themselves, and they say, should I tell Abraham our plans? And, they, and the, the answer is, the consensus is yes, because we have made a covenant with them. So then suddenly the other two guys go, and, and you no longer have three, there's no ambiguity. You have uh, a, a uh, an epiphany, a theophany here of, of, of God. And, you know, God tells Abraham what he's about to do. And Abraham confronts Yahweh and says, how can the God of justice act unjustly? And it's in response to that statement by Abraham that God says, okay. And then that's when the negotiations begin. And what's funny is God agrees with each number that Abraham Abraham was very optimistic. Or maybe he was shrewd. (laughs) No, I think it's one of those, he he was surprised that God agreed with him. And then he realized the first thing that came out of his mouth, I mean, I've I've been there. We're not going to find 50 people. It's like going to the car dealer. But, But the... But the larger framework of that is God grants Abraham's point that there is an idea of justice by which the God of justice, you know, the just judge has to conform and is open to negotiating what he's about to do. That is an example of this idea that there seems to be something independent that's good that God and Abraham can come together and talk about. Now, a few chapters later, you have God commanding um, Abraham to sacrifice his son. And we're no, we're not in ordinance land there anymore. <laughs> we're, 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 we're having uh, the God of the just commanding something that we're is... Now, we're at 8,000 feet, and, yeah, and we're it, crossing it, out of ordinance uh, land, uh, and you can eat are, the peanuts now. Yeah, we are now in the pure land of statutes. All right. A land that William Ockham would have loved. So, at any rate, that's... that's <laughs> Here that's we are. It's dilemma. Friday. We're making Ockham jokes. Yeah. Which, um, People are going to come in and give us wedgies. Well, at least you know it's flush our heads in toilets. Now, the next time we hear Occam's razor, you'll go, well, what? I heard about that guy once before. Anyway. So it's interesting to, to, in the dialogue, like part of the the flow is that um, after they get to this idea that, that, first off, again, we we have Euthyphro sort of saying, uh, Socrates asked him early, what's piety? What I'm doing is pious. There you go. <laughs> and then they, you know, he it moves from. That's like Donald Trump, exactly. Yeah. And for I am, I'm I am the one that matters. I'm the most pious. I mean, the piety in this White House more than any other president. I mean, almost. I mean, pretty much. I mean, because if I say that, the fake news will say, "Oh, Donald Trump lied about his piety." So I mean, but basically, basically the most pious. <laughs> so then you know, we move on to again. Piety being what's pleasing to the gods. Well, that's a problem. All the gods. But then um, 
it's funny because Socrates keeps pushing him on this and he gets frustrated. And I think this is, you know, when I've taught this to undergrads, I always like, when, when I've taught this dialogue, I, I start with a, with a question, what's a sport? And bowling, golf, uh, you know, like an baseball. An evolutionary line that does not Exactly. Continue. You know, right. Like, what's a sport? Like, so... Everybody could generally agree team sports were sports, right. like baseball, football, basketball. And then, like, is it a sport if it's non-competitive? Is it a sport if it doesn't have a ball? Is it a sport if it this? Is it a sport if if uh, you know? It's because like, what's an art? What's it? so? It, there's a problem with these words that we think we we know what they right. mean, right. and we can think of common examples. But are we getting at the essence of the thing? And right. so Socrates keeps pushing and refining, refining, refining. Then he says, well. The bigger category is justice. And and I think there's this analogy where fear and shame, like wherever there's um, shame, there's fear, right? So if you've yeah. done something you're, you're ashamed of, you have fear because you're, you're worried about people knowing yeah, it. Yeah, it's the most ancient form of morality. Right. Most primitive and most ancient. Yeah. But fear doesn't always accompany by shame. Hmm. Like if somebody, if a terrorist came in here with an AK-47, we would be afraid and not be ashamed. I'd just be angry. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Well, no, anyway. no, I, I would not be ashamed to be uh, to be afraid. <laughs> no, I'd be afraid. But so. you know, like, so he's saying like, so, and then he uses that analogy to kind of say that piety is actually lower than justice, yeah. uh, which huh. is, so, oh, interesting. so he's kind of trying to say that that's the important kind of thing. Um, uh, he says that all, that all that is pious is just, uh, but then he doesn't really kind of go anymore. And then Euthyphros pushes back, responding that piety is looking after the gods. And then Socrates thinks that's hubris, and you're sort right. of like, it, it's like it, God sort of needs like 50 people to shout at a praise rally so God will feel better about himself. Right. Or you know. So uh, again, Euthyphro gives more and more bad definitions. Um, and at the end, Euthyphro just leaves because it, he's. it's clear that he knows nothing, right? right? Like, And yet he's like, I gotta go. Why? Because you've just been dialoguing circles here like you throw it's clearly we're, we're, we're you know where we haven't even discovered what the essence of piety is because i gotta go do the pious acts yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just so brilliant yeah, there you go <laughs> and socrates i mean you know don't try to make me think before i pray yeah yeah, yeah and this is one of these things where so socrates you know is regarded as the wisest man on earth why because the face is because he knew he was ignorant his yeah, ignorance yeah right <laughs> so i mean in terms of uh, bringing it back, you know, where this uh, writer uh, was trying to reconcile Bentel and Lewis, how does this question, I mean, I talked about it in terms of the Hebrew scriptures, but how does it play out in Christian theology? I, mean, I think that, you know, ultimately there's some kind of answer that, well, God, God's essence and his, you can't be separated from morality. So God, like the reason why, although God, are God's it, attributes, or are you saying essence? yeah, attributes? Okay. Sorry, okay, we'll say attributes. But and the, the God's being is not arbitrary, nor is God, but neither is morality above God, because this is the Euthyphro problem, right? right. If 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 the gods uh, do it because it's pious or just, then the, there's a higher standard than the gods, right? If, if right. the gods, if it's, if it's because the gods do it, it's pious or just, then morality is arbitrary or piety is arbitrary. But, but I mean, I think the tradition has wanted to say it's best that there is this interplay between like who God is and what God does, which is what God is totally free and yet not arbitrary. So like if, right. you know, if, if and we, we've it's sort of, um, 
what is it, the David uh, Bentley Hart term? Voluntarist uh, <laughs> libertinism or whatever. But the fact that we think as, as post-Enlightenment consumers that the more choices I have, the more free I am, right? It's, it's, the, the opposite is probably true. Right. Like, yeah. So like the fact that God uh, can't be arbitrary mm-hmm. – is not a deficiency in the being of God. It's a deficiency in our understanding of what freedom is. And also that, you know, I think there is something about to be regained that uh, that actually things advance the more simple they get. Complexity is often a sign of not goodness. Right, right, right. I, I think one thing, you know, I think— this is why- uh, Apple's better than Android. Uh, simple, well, yeah, and simpler I think, and more elegant. I think one thing you can say there's a kind of coherency between um, between these issues. In other words, I think on, if just to talk from ethics on the ground, that I think we have to say there's a coherency between the idea that God determine you know God shows us what is good, but that 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 is accessible to us in lots of different ways. And I think one of the things that uh, maybe a Van Til tradition uh, can miss, and as well as the an Occam's tradition, and I'm, they're two different things. I'm not saying, I'm not equating them, but is that... Yeah, because Van Til... He would be upset. And the conservative reform Van Til are going to say, Van Til is equatable with no one. Yeah. He's a singular genius in the history of human thought. Well, that's not actually what I was thinking, what I meant by that. But at any rate, is that God, and I think this is where the Hebrew scriptures need to recapture our imagination. Uh, God gives us enough information or enough uh, grace or both, or I think grace-filled information, that we can actually be a dialogue partner. You know, God, and you know, I think the power of the Hebrew scripture is this invitation to wrestle with the living God. And again, what's, I think to be one of the most powerful metaphors for this is I'm pretty sure that uh, the living God could take an 80-year-old guy in a wrestling match in the first 30 seconds. I think it would be a pin. But God chooses, and this is more consistent. What about the rock? <laughs> God, this is, and I think this is where the sovereignty of God people misunderstand God's sovereignty and Almighty, because God consistently demonstrates God's power. Let's um, call them Sagpa, S O G P, the sovereignty of God people. Yeah. Sagpa, Sagpa is that they consistently miss the. I think the yeah, it's like it's Lewis. They get the magic. They don't get the deeper magic. Yeah, and the deeper magic is that God consistently from the beginning demonstrates. Um, what it means for him to under, God's self-understanding power is in limitation. That God chooses to treat Abraham as an equal partner. God chooses to talk things over with Moses. God chooses to go all night wrestling with an old guy to try to make a point. And and in the full revelation of God, God chooses to be born a baby in a cave, which is the great ones, whether it be Maximus Confessor, uh, Francis of Assisi, Luther. Uh, of Van Til. Yeah. See, I was... I was you're on a roll. I was on Sorry, a roll. you're on a roll. He's just knocked <laughs> I my retorco. I can't resist. And I'm going to start over. So, in Holic. So anyway, uh, I think they get that. And I think that's the power of the gospel. And, um, you know, as we uh, talked about in our our dialogue sermon, that the great insight, one of the versions of how Luther, Luther gives us three or four different versions how he got the evangelical insight. But one version uh, in his, uh, the uh, introduction to his collected Latin works, he says the insight came to him while he was in the Coloca, which is the... The privy, the bathroom. The shitter. Yes. All right. Yeah. And and I also think like the deep tie between Socrates and Luther is, it's funny at the end of this, it's left inconclusive, right? Like they haven't even, they couldn't even get a definition of piety, let alone, right? Like Socrates is sort of saying, well, you're really marching quick 
you know, to yeah. the to the trial. And I've asked you just to define piety, and you admit that like it's clear in the dialogue, Euthyphro can't do it. He's like, well, I'm acting it, not you know, I'm doing it. I I don't understand it, but I'm doing it. And I think it's the irony is the openness of that dialogue. Socrates is there executed for impiety, and this is the whole like theology of glory versus the cross kind of thing. I mean, Socrates can real can be in a place of ambiguity and see that as a place of understanding. Right. Like he doesn't have to sort of mm-hmm. build up a testament to his own party or, you know, or he doesn't have to sort of in a moment of ambiguity, shut that down in deference of a sort of half-baked tradition or something. And I think that is what part of what I think celebrating the Reformation legacy is, right? It's, it's to um, be able to sit uh, because if God can, as you were saying, if God can accommodate and come down, you know, in the Heidelberg Disposition, Luther says, you know, the theologian of the cross looks for God where he is right. in these accommodating acts, which ultimately climaxes in the incarnation of the cross, not in these sort of constructs that make us feel better and manage our anxiety. Yeah, I think Luther's greatest contributions was his willing to question and, and, and stand up and ask the question and his observations. I think some of his answers are problematic later in life, but uh, thank God for people who go against the grain, like Brother Socrates and Brother Martin. Amen.
Not so 